The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Okay, it's time for our last word of the environment with John Gibbons, who has decided to mark my return from holidays by trying to wind me up about the holiday that I had. Because, John, I flew, not like you, driving, I flew uh, into Faro and crossed the border into southwest Spain, where I spent two weeks at a hotel on a golf course. And I played 11 rounds of golf during my time away and loved going out on those lush green fairways and onto the greens and had a great time. And you're going to give out to me about it. Not at all. Welcome back, Matt, first of all. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, one of those things, I guess, yeah, the golf course, you'd say, well, at least it's green. It sounds green. It even looks green. And I've even hacked around a little bit myself. And, uh, you know, it's nice to get out in nature, etc., etc. But you kind of feel there's a butt oh, coming up carbon here. Carbon sinks. Aren't golf courses terrific carbon sinks? Mm, depends on how they're, how they're organised. I guess there are a few things to think about them. And maybe before we get to the environmental stuff, uh, you may have seen some studies uh, that have shown that the, the worst and most inequitable use of available land space is if you dedicate it to, to golf. If you compare the space taken up, say, by a golf club, which might be 90, 100 acres, compared to a couple of acres dedicated, say, to a football field or a hockey field or so on, or a tennis courts. So in terms of the number of people, Matt, who can benefit per acre, golf is far and away. And I know people say uh, it's an elite sport, and yes, it is. And that's why we have all the billions pouring into it. Uh, but it does... Sorry, yeah. Yes and no, because I will tell you that m- m- the the number of conversations I've had about golf with taxi drivers is enormous. There's an enormous amount of people who see it as a recreation, as a good walk enhanced. Absolutely. Yeah, and, 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 and I understand the point that you make about elite golf clubs that are expensive to enter and all the rest of it and stuff. But there are still plenty of players who go to these clubs during the week when they get in at cheaper rates or they go to the public courses like the brilliant one up in Stepaside. Funny you should say that because, again, at my hacker level, that's where I would hack around is up in step aside in a, in an 18 hole public course, uh, fairly, fairly not too challenging, let's say. And that would, that suits my level. And you're absolutely right. There'd be plenty of people there from mixed backgrounds and not too many Range Rovers uh, out in the, out in the park up in step aside. So it is, I agree with you. There's a, there's a democratic element to it. But if you scale that up, like so many of these things, then it starts to become a problem. Let's look at some of the numbers. Now, you were, you were in Faro in Spain, but I want to take Faro in Portugal. Portugal. Went into Spain. Into Spain, onto Portugal. Yeah. We start, say, with a typical Californian golf course. Uh, occupies about a hundred acres and it uses, uh, 90 million gallons of water, Matt, a year. That in our currency is 340 million litres of water required to water one golf course. And these are golf courses in water-stressed areas. And of course, exactly as you described, that we build golf courses and people travel to golf courses precisely for the nice weather. Unfortunately, that means we've got golf courses located in some of the hottest places on earth. We have them down in Florida. We have them in Utah. Salt Lake City is another place people love to go and play golf. They like to go play golf in Las Vegas and so on. And of course, in order to support this, that requires huge amounts of water being diverted from other sources and lowering rivers. Now, in France, for example, uh, Extinction Rebellion, XOR, uh, they pulled a little stunt the other day where they poured concrete into the holes on some golf clubs as a a very, kind of very French, very direct protest against the fact that most municipalities in France, many of whom, by the way, have declared a water crisis, there's an opt-out for golf courses that they're 
allowed to continue to water their courses. Now they have to do it at a reduced level, but say there's a complete ban on householders watering their gardens, watering outdoor watering, yet golf courses are allowed. And the feeling again, Matt, is that the reason for that is that the people involved, not all of them, but most of them, many of them, are very well connected. And that, and that, I guess that's... Well, a, well, could it be, and I will give you this much, I was a bit taken about and a bit shocked as well that I felt the course that we were playing, on the two courses, were overwatered. They were actually sodden apart. And I said, this is ridiculous. Yep. This is an excessive use of water to keep them in the shape. But I suppose they could argue that for these area, and particularly the area that we're in, wouldn't be a particularly wealthy area of Spain, the tourism revenue is absolutely essential. They wouldn't have the tourism revenue if it wasn't for having the likes of golf on offer to the tourists. Yeah, I think there is something to that. However, again, to, to return, to, it's not just the water stress issue, which is, of course, is a massive and growing issue. We also have uh, the problem that the manicured golf courses, that you know, that lovely short one inch uh, turf. That's maintained, Matt, by the rigorous, constant use of pesticides. A study that looked at this found across the world up to 50 types of pesticides are used, uh, used worldwide. Now, an individual course might use three or four different types of pesticides. So the reason why that lovely, smooth surface looks like something, it looks artificial, Matt, because essentially it is artificial. And of course, the other point about golf courses, which applies to other types of land use, is they're also monocultures. And what that means is there's no real space for nature on a golf course. So it should be... Hold on, don't many of the golf courses maintain loads of trees that otherwise might be cut down? Quite a few of them, I know of, actually are trying to encourage growing out particular areas of the courses to encourage rewilding. I mean, the, I'm not sure I would associate golf clubs and rewilding. Let's say you've got, let's say you've got trees on a golf course, which they may well be and they may well survive around a golf course where they don't survive elsewhere. The problem, of course, is because they're extensively using pesticides, that means the birds that are likely to nest in those trees, if, if they do, uh, their prey are gone. So therefore, it's not a very inviting place, for example, if a bird is depending on insects that aren't there. So it's part of that system. And I guess, as I say, Matt, not here to knock golf clubs uh, or golf courses too heavily, just a, a light a light wrap. More the point that uh, looks can be deceiving. They're a sort of a green mirage. That's the best way I'd put it. And if you're out in Faro or somewhere in Spain and all around you, you see scorched earth and everything is, is uh, orange as far as the eye can see. And then you've got this big glowing green thing in the middle. That is not an oasis of biodiversity. Diversity that is basically usually an oasis of rich people playing golf. Okay, let's move on. And somewhere else where I went on holidays, oh, I think it was about five years ago now, which I loved with the family, Lake Garda in Italy. And we went out on a couple of occasions on boats. I'm worried about telling you I went out on boats because you'd probably be complaining <laughs> about the fact that there was petrol being used to run the engines. But anyway, leaving that aside, uh, there is an issue with Lake Garda which is worrying at present, isn't there? That's right, Matt. Um, basically, the levels, and we've seen some stark photographs, anybody can Google these, some really stark photographs uh, around Lake Garda. The, 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 the levels have plunged. Now, this is partly, obviously, to do with the severe European drought, the ongoing severe European drought. But there is a little bit more to it as well. Apparently, part of the problem is that the the, the River Po, uh, which is suffering its worst drought in 70 years, uh, some of the water from Lake Garda is being diverted uh, from, uh, sorry, from the Po is being, is now where agriculture has a supply from the Po, they're now getting it basically for irrigation uh, from Lake Garda. And I think that has put additional pressure. And I see as well, for example, that a, a uh, beach that has never heretofore been seen has appeared in Lake Garda. 
a beach. A beach, mid- yeah. In the lake. You see, this issue with water is also, I was sent you a piece I saw today in the Financial Times as well, that the Yangtze River in China, and this means that now production of all the things that we import, such as cars and telephones, is going to be impacted because they're not having enough water in the river to generate the hydroelectric power they need. That's right. And I guess what these stories, uh, and as you join them together, what they're showing us is that the the global supply chains are much more vulnerable to disruption than maybe we thought. For example, uh, as you said, in in China, in the Sichuan, the province of China, it's got a population of 84 million, which is round about the population of Germany. And most of its power is hydropower. But they've been experiencing temperatures, Matt, this summer uh, topping 40 degrees centigrade, which again are record for their level. So the Water levels are down. That is affecting their hydropower, which, as I say, is the the principal source of power in this giant province is hydropower. That means companies, for example, uh, the giant uh, Foxcom, uh, who provide uh, materials for Toyota and Apple, they've basically had to had to ramp down. And if you go across the globe over to Germany, we find that navigation on the Rhine has been interrupted because of record low levels. And the I think it's probably a surprise to us here in Ireland where we, we move so little by barge. But in, in, in Europe and indeed in, in, in other parts of the world, barges are still main commercial arteries. And so the Rhine is now at a level where um, it, it is affecting and beginning to disrupt supply chains. And again, they're all sort of connected up together. Uh, thank you to the listener who gets in touch. He's a greenkeeper and he wants you to know pesticides aren't used anymore. He says, please tell your guest to look up Syngenta Operation Pollinator, of which he is a proud participant. He said, times have changed on the golf courses. Great. I'm, I, I'll certainly look it up. Is Syngenta a, a chemical company? I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I will look that up too. Yeah, I will look that up too. Okay. okay. Uh, talk to me about the potential for a new car-free town in West Dublin. Yeah, this is an idea, Matt, that has been floated and this is over in the direction, um, I suppose, out past uh, Tala, uh, Cherry Orchard, that direction. And the, the plan really over the next number of years is to develop this town, which would have a population probably, well, occupying about 700 hectares with a population about 85,000. And the, what, what makes this town a little bit unusual is that the plan is to have it, is to design it pretty much without cars, to build it without cars, to, to create a proper public transport infrastructure that basically means that cars are not required. And that's incredibly important because we know, for example, in Ireland, we've huge problems, Matt, with our transport emissions. They're just like since 1990, I think they've, they've gone up uh, two or three hundred percent. They've gone totally the wrong direction. We've become a far one of the most car dependent countries in the, in the EU and indeed in the world. And that that trend, if we're going to turn emissions around, we have to reduce the car dependence, especially in our okay, cities. Okay, but joined up thinking, and I'm not sure you were aware of this, but it just come into my head. There was a planning application in Terenure in Dublin, rejected in the last week or so, on the basis for apartments. And one of the key reasons for the rejection was there weren't enough car parking spaces being provided by the developers. So yeah. here we have this thing where we're saying about getting away from cars, and this opportunity to build apartments was rejected on the basis it didn't have enough car parking spaces. Yeah, I think that's a a huge issue where I think sometimes our planners are maybe they're coming from a different era, some of them, where maybe the, the, the world that they grew up in was not a world constrained by carbon. It was not a world where we were in a climate emergency. So I get it, people who maybe came through the system, through colleges and so on 20, 30 years ago, many of them simply haven't retuned to the fact that we now have a whole new set of criteria. Now, to go back to that, that city, uh, Matt, in West Dublin, one of the really interesting things there is they're going to deliberately exclude underground parking from the apartment blocks that have been built. So the idea 
idea is that if you exclude them, basically you're creating a situation where people are not, well, first of all, they're not being facilitated to park cars. And that means instead, if you provide density of public transport, people will use it. We've seen this all over Europe. This system is, is growing and spreading. And there's a particular example, if we have a moment to talk about it, uh, which I, I wanted to, to refer to, because sometimes people are afraid of change. It's a big thing, you know, oh, you know, you, if, you, if you knock cars out of the city, you're going to destroy the city. Now, back in 1999, there's a city in, in Spain called Pontevedra, about 85,000. They essentially banned cars in 1999. Now, what has happened in the interim is that, the first of all, the population of the city has increased at a time that many Spanish cities are depopulating, has gone up by 15,000. They've reduced their air pollution by two thirds and they haven't had a road traffic death, Matt, in this city in over 10 years. How do people get around? They get around through public transport and in the city centre, again, it's a compact city centre like many city centres in Ireland, like Kilkenny, like uh, I suppose Killarney. There's so many city centres in Ireland and town centres that are really quite compact. The so-called, the the one mile cities that you can comfortably walk around, you can e-cycle around and you can obviously, for people with limited mobility, there's a scope for taxis and so on. But the point really with cities like Pontevedra is that they show that it is possible to give cities, and this, by the way, isn't an anti-car thing. I mean, I'm a motorist, I'm a pedestrian, I'm a very occasional cyclist, I use the dart, so I'm all of the above. This isn't about, you know, anti-car. It's about saying, what's the best way to use very limited space in our in our busy cities? And absolutely the worst thing we can do in our cities is to allow untrammeled access to private cars occupying four, five, six metres each, then they've got to come into the cities, they've got to park someplace so there's more space given over. So we find essentially that we've designed our cities in Ireland and we've followed more or less an American model, which is we, we open up streets, we let we let traffic through and that's something that basically we've, we've really reached the limits of because we've increased now to about 2.3 million cars in Ireland on a very small island and we've got to a point where we have to rethink it Matt because we're, we're basically choked out. John Gibbons we have to leave it there thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word of TFM we'll see you again next week The Last Word with Matt Cooper Weekdays from 4.30 Today FM.